This is CNN. Radio. Welcome to CNN Profiles. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder, and you have to be a little envious of our guest, author Jody Picot. She has written 20 novels, she is only in her 40s, and as her Facebook page proudly proclaims, five of her last six novels debuted in the number one slot on the New York Times bestseller list. She sells so many books, she tells me her publishers don't even have her pitch her ideas. She writes, they publish. Her name is Jody Picot. Jody, welcome. Thank you. So just as I was coming into the studio here, I bumped into one of our CNN people, a woman who is a mother of a teenager. I said, have you ever read Jody Picot? She said, oh, absolutely. She said, she's, <laughs> she's an amazing writer, but I had to stop reading her because her books were too upsetting. And as a... <laughs> Does that surprise you, that reaction? I had to stop reading her because her books were so upsetting as a mother. No, I, I think that um, there's definitely, a, it depends on the, the order you read my books and the, the sort of books that you read. I certainly don't always write about children and horrible things happening to them, but there are a few, uh, whether it's illness or kidnapping or a school shooting. Um, you know, I, I've sort of run the gamut on a lot of these perils uh, that tend to be the things we worry the most about as parents, which really is why I wrote them. I lead a really charmed life. I'm a very lucky woman with great kids and a great husband, and I don't live the lives of my characters. But often I choose to write books about the things that I fear the most, as if writing the book might be some kind of superstitious treatment that then keeps me from experiencing it in real life, which, of course, doesn't really work that way. But I know there is a part of my brain that, that believes that. And, and so far it's worked anyway. Anecdotally, <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, I, I want you to give us, because your new book is, is so layered and uh, and so rich, and, and even though it's in some ways about a subject that happened more than half century ago, it is about an issue that we, we continually face and always will. Mm -hmm. But because of the layers, it must have been hard to give the quick pitch. Do you even need to give a pitch to publishers anymore? I've been really fortunate. I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years, and, and my publishers really let me write about whatever I feel the need to write. I'm not told what I should be writing. So, no, um, my publisher usually doesn't even see a book until it's finished. So tell us uh, tell us about your new book, and it's, it's called The Storyteller, uh, but you wouldn't, people from the title, you wouldn't know what the subject is. So give us, give our audience the sort of the 30-second version of The Storyteller. <laughs> So the storyteller is the story of Sage Singer. She is a 20-something baker in a small New England town, very much a recluse. And she is going to a grief group because her mother has died. And there she meets a very unlikely friend, a 95-year-old man who is also attending this grief group. They become very close. And one day, Joseph confides in her a secret. He would like her to help him die. Not because he's ill, but quite the contrary. He thinks that the reason that he's lasted this long is God's little punishment, because he used to be a Nazi officer, and he thinks he deserves to die. What he doesn't realize at the time is that Sage has a grandmother who is a Holocaust survivor. So if she decides to help him, is it mercy or is it revenge? And for me, this book is really about the nature of good and evil. If you do something very, very bad, can you spend the rest of your life trying to do good and erase that sin? 
By the same token, if you consider yourself a moral person, a good person, is there anything that could actually make you tip the balance into committing some kind of crime, some kind of evil? Did you go into the book knowing the answers for yourself? Not necessarily, because what I would have done in the situation had I been asked by Joseph to kill him might not be what Sage does. So it was really a, a matter of working through her own issues, her own um, antisocial behavior and why it exists, her own connection to her history to help her make a decision. The book was very much um, reminiscent for me of another book called uh, The Sunflower, which was written by Simon Wiesenthal. And when I started to think up the plot, I actually went back and reread that book. In it, uh, Simon Wiesenthal describes being a prisoner at a concentration camp who was called to the bedside of a dying Nazi uh, who wanted to confess his sins to a Jew, any Jew, before he died and be absolved. And in the the book, Wiesenthal basically comes to the conclusion that he can't forgive this man, even if he'd wanted to, because he is not the victim upon whom the sin was perpetrated. Those people are dead. So basically, this Nazi soldier is out of luck. Since the book was published, it has been republished in multiple incarnations with theologians and politicians and moral philosophers all weighing in on what he did, whether it was right, and what their own traditions would have urged them to do. And it's a really fascinating foray into morality. And it really got me thinking, what would happen if I recreated that situation in the modern day with today's generation? And and, and by the way, uh, I spent the few hours before this interview reading the sunflower because you have you, you, <laughs> Great. You, well you have talked about how that that sort of triggered yeah. the idea for you and I had never read it and for those of you who don't know Simon Wiesenthal he was a uh, not only a, a Holocaust survivor but became mm-hmm. really the sort of the leading the most prominent Nazi hunter for many years right. until he died in 2005 uh, the sunflower is a nonfiction account correct that's right yes and, absolutely and I you know because of the miracles of the iPad, I sort of I, I downloaded the book quickly today. I went into the search function for the word forgive, and there I was expecting to see a quick little anecdote, but he spent many, many pages on that story talking yes. about the officer and the specific incident that had haunted mm-hmm. that Nazi officer who was only Nazi soldier. He was 21 mm-hmm. years old, and right. he was dying in this hospital room, and he talked about how he and his fellow soldiers had rounded up about 300 or so Jews in this Russian town during the offensive against Russia and loaded them into a house, sealed the doors, uh, mm-hmm. filled it with gasoline, and set the house on fire. And he remembered this one family, uh, a, fa- a father, a mother, and their child jumping out the window. And the father, it's almost hard to say it when you think of it, the, the mm-hmm. father holding the child's eyes as they fell right. to their death. And so that was was the incident. And the question is, should he and again, should your characters, should he have forgiven this Nazi soldier? Now, I think we we can tell people I'm not not sure if you just did. We can tell people what Wiesenthal did. We won't tell them what your character did. (laughs) Wiesenthal refuses to forgive. He just walks out of the room and doesn't forgive. And uh, what do you think about his choice in that situation? It's really interesting. You know, had I had I been through a concentration camp myself, could could I forgive that man? I don't know. I haven't I haven't lived with the same sort of horrors that that he did. Um, I think that I would like to say I could forgive. 
I don't know if it's right. I don't know if it's fair. I think his his philosophical justification for not forgiving the soldier is a perfect one. I am not the one that you upon whom this crime was was committed. That person is dead. Therefore, they can't forgive you. Well, neither can I. And in the Jewish tradition, from what I understand, that's actually what is laid out. Um, if you know, if, if someone is is murdered, for example, uh, if if a Jew is murdered, their family can't forgive the murderer. It's the o- the only person who can is the person who has been murdered. Um, it made me think a lot about another book that I wrote called Change of Heart, which was about the death penalty in America. And I did a lot of interviews for that book with families who had lost someone in some kind of violent crime. And what I found, and this surprised me a little, was that the families that had been able to put their lives back together and move on and not be crippled by what had happened to their loved one were the ones who had a chance to sit down with the perpetrator and to be able to say, I forgive you. Because what it did was free them. When you forgive someone, they no longer have the power to drag you down, to make you keep thinking about this horror, to build your life around the horror. By freeing them, by forgiving them, you free yourself. Uh, It was a very interesting interpretation for me to hear, and I heard it over and over again when I was doing research for that book. So, um, you know, what I would like to think is that I would have the capacity to forgive. I don't know, honestly, if I had lived through that, if I would. You interviewed a, a number of Holocaust survivors and, yes. and really were taken through some horrific tales. Uh, did any of the Holocaust survivors you interviewed, were they ever in a position where they were able to forgive or at least make the choice to forgive or not? When I did my interviews with all of them, I actually asked that question. Uh, you know, do you forgive what, what was done to you and to your loved ones? And everyone had a different answer. There were some I spoke with who said, no, I will never forgive them. There were others who said, I do, because otherwise I would not be, you know, I would not have evolved to where I am today, basically. Um, I needed to forgive them so that I could move forward. But even the ones who said that said they will never forget and that that was the only component that that was steadfast. Um, You could say to someone who had, who had committed a crime against your family, okay, I'm done, I'm moving past this, um, but I'm always going to remember what you've done and how it, it affected my life. And I think that that coming back to that memory, to that story, to the idea that that you can't let go of that story was really that central point that the survivors kept hammering home for me. You, uh, as a story writer, as a storyteller, you clearly use a lot of imagination, and yet uh some of your accounts, some of your non-fictional accounts of the things that these survivors have told you are, are really beyond imagination, right? I mean, you couldn't... Absolutely. In, in fact, I, I, we had interviewed an author on this show... Uh, uh, well, we had interviewed an author on this show who, wrote, who recently wrote the prequel to the Godfather series. His name is Ed Falco. <laughs> and uh, he was authorized by Mario Puzo's family. And uh-huh. it was a very violent book. And he, mm-hmm. he told us, he said, look, I have a violent imagination. I'm, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. not a violent guy, but I have a violent mm-hmm. imagination. Mm-hmm. What is your imagination like and how did it play in? Did, did your imagination impact in some way or change the events or did the events actually, I hate to use the word inspire, but trigger certain things in your imagination? I could not imagine things that happened to these men and women I spoke with. Uh, my imagination's just not 
not like that. And everything that happens to the character of Minka in the book is something that, that really did happen to someone I spoke with. It was as if I was taking several threads from different lives and braiding them together to create a new one, a new set of experiences. Um, everything in there is accurate, has happened to someone who survived the Holocaust themselves. Uh, you know, the, the imagination part had to kick in for a different sort of background uh, flashback, and that was um, the character of Joseph, this 95-year-old alleged former Nazi officer. Because, you know, let's be honest, it's not as though you can just, you know, go into the phone book and look up former Nazis who are willing to talk to you for research. And uh, because of that, I really had to work very closely with historians from the U.S. uh, Holocaust Memorial Museum to understand not only the economic climate that led to the rise of the Nazi party, but also the historical uh, background, time, war progress to create a character who could conceivably and accurately have reacted the way that Joseph does in this book. That was really, really difficult because I had to wrap my head around how an ordinary German kid could wind up doing truly awful things. So, you know, that that makes me think of... Hannah Arendt's phrase, uh, the banality of evil. Did you, yeah. did you, mm-hmm. was that phrase applicable to the things you learned or was it something else? What, what sort of, what, what, yeah, what it, helped you wrap your arms around it? Um, well, what helped me was trying to put it in context. Uh, two things. One was to be able to historically say that I don't think I don't think we could have seen the rise of the Third Reich without the economic situation in Germany post-World War I. Um, They needed a scapegoat to unify everybody. And that's, of course, exactly what happened. And Hitler tapped into that. Um, You know, so I I needed to be able to philosophically locate myself in the time. And that was quite helpful. Um, That thought that Imagine being a German citizen who had done everything right, who had saved and scrimped and tried to make sure that you had money for your future and money to take care of your kids. And then one day through no fault of your own, you know, bread costs a a million Deutschmarks and and no one can afford a loaf of bread. Um, You can begin to see how desperation builds quickly. And that's sort of the the, the fertile ground that uh, the rise of the Third Reich sort of took took hold in. So that that was part of it. The other part of it was this um, this sort of absolution of responsibility that I kept coming back to. Uh, you know, you think about that famous psychological experiment that was done by Stanley Milgram, where. He was trying to see if, uh, you know, if, if someone was telling you, turn the knob, turn up the electricity as you electrocute a person in a booth, if someone is telling you to do it, will you do it? And, of course, what he found out was, yes, very often, even though there's an actor in the booth who is feigning severe pain, um, these people who are told to hurt someone by a third party will do it. And I, I do think that played into a lot of ordinary mild-mannered German citizens who felt they were, were, I'm just doing what I was told. This isn't my fault. I'm just doing what, what's going to happen anyway. Um, that that was very interesting to me, too, that, that abdication of responsibility. And the other thing that I really wanted to get across is to sort of blow apart a fallacy. There's this belief that has taken root that um, Nazis did what they did because they would have been punished had they said no. Had, for example, this young Nazi soldier in the Wiesenthal book walked away instead of throwing gas into that, that 
building, um, you know, he would have been punished. Well, he probably would have been punished. Um, he would have maybe even been sent to the front line, which at certain points of the war could have been a death sentence. But he would not have been killed. And there's this belief that, that a lot of these soldiers, these, these Nazi soldiers, did what they did out of self-preservation. And that actually has been proven to not be the case through multiple interviews that they've done with people who have um, been found out to be part of the Nazi party and who were eventually extradited. Uh, so that, I thought, was really important to get across, too. That's interesting. You know, just recently in our, our children's Sunday school class, we had uh, uh, somebody who was a hidden child during World War yes. II, a, 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 a Polish Jew whose uh, parents uh, saw things were not going in the right direction and handed mm-hmm. her off to an employee of theirs, of their small business. And this employee at, at, at the girl's age of three or four really mm-hmm. risked her life because in that case, you would be killed if you were found hiding a Jew. Uh, right. And it turns out she was hiding a couple of Jewish families. And um, uh, it's just stunning the risks that some people took and that some people didn't. I, I, I don't know that I was uh, completely aware that Nazi soldiers, if they had refused an order, uh, would not necessarily be killed. Yeah. I, I mean, I was told that multiple times, um, you know, not just by the historians at the Holocaust Museum, but also um, by the the director who works at um, the Human Rights and Special Prosecution section of the Department of Justice, who actually goes out and finds Nazis and, and you know, winds up getting them denaturalized and deported. And and some people will, you know, will wonder, but boy, there there still are some alive. And you really, oh, you yeah. really, for, for this book, you embedded yourself with Holocaust survivors and this Mm -hmm. particular gentleman to tell us about him and what you learned from (laughs) basically, you know, what may be the the last official U.S. government Nazi hunter, because there aren't that many left. No, but, um, you know, it's not just Nazis they go after. It's all war criminals. Um, and, and the interesting thing about uh, is his name is Eli Rosenbaum. He is a tremendous, intelligent, devoted, committed, compassionate man um, who I very much enjoyed speaking to. And uh, for, for a lot of reasons, he taught me a lot of the legal history behind what is, is done when it comes to hunting Nazis in this country. Uh, in 1981, the Supreme Court ruled in Fedorenko versus the U.S. that um, – Anyone who was part of the Nazi machine at a concentration camp is responsible for the perpetration of war crimes against Jews. Um, So, you know, for example, you didn't have to be the one putting the Zyklon B tablets into the gas chambers. If you were working at a concentration camp as a guard, just, you know, manning a bunch of people, you are still responsible, with the belief being that had anyone not done their job, the entire machine would have begun to dissolve. Um, Now, that's an interesting ruling because prior to 2007, our genocide laws in the United States only covered genocides committed by Americans against Americans, which is basically Custer's last stand. And it's only since 2007 that we can now go and prosecute against people who commit war crimes against Americans or people who commit war crimes and then come to America to hide out. But what we can do with World War II Nazi war criminals is find them, uh, make sure that they are who they think they are, and manage to uh, denaturalize them and deport them to their country of origin with the hopes that that country will then prosecute. doesn't always happen. Um, And so, you know, basically uh, what Eli 
really communicated to me was why this is still so important. A lot of people say, great, you're chasing someone who's 95. What damage can they do? And um, and there was actually a story that he told me about an 85-year-old man who they had linked to um, to some you know, to, to being a Nazi, a, a member of the Nazi party. And they invited him down to have a conversation at the U.S. attorney's office, and he refused. And they surrounded his house. And with police, and he came out on the porch holding a gun. And he lifted the gun, and of course, immediately, all the police responded by lifting their weapons. And he held up his hands, and he went, Why you shoot me? I not Jew. Hmm. So you hear something like that, and you think, Well, okay, so not much has changed, even if it has been over half a century. Um, you know, and he also pointed out there are lots of reasons to continue this hunt. First of all, there is no statute of limitations on murder. Second of all, if someone who survived the Holocaust has made their home the United States, it is not fair that we should that they should have to risk seeing the face of a perpetrator at the grocery store, particularly when we as a nation routinely deport people whose only crime is that they don't have the right papers or they don't have papers at all. And finally, you know, is the idea that that yes, World War II happened a long time ago, but genocides happen every day. And if people who are out there in areas of the world where war crimes are still occurring know that the U.S. is not going to stop at anything. It actually might affect what happens in the future. If there's some guy in Darfur holding up a pistol to somebody's head and he thinks, you know what, they were chasing John Demanyuk till he was 91. I don't want to be that guy. And he puts down the gun and runs. Well, then you know you've done a really good thing. So now coming back to the theme of your book, what if that guy who had held, who had pulled out the gun, the 85-year-old guy who was who was you know found by 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 U.S. agents and said, "I'm not Jew." You know why you shoot? Mm-hmm. What if he had come out and said, "I've been waiting to confess and to ask for mm-hmm. forgiveness." Mm-hmm. He would still be deported. Right. <laughs> That's all very well and good, but <laughs> but 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 looking at the deterrent quality of this is, and I guess this is part of the dilemma is giving forgiveness to people who have committed such crimes, uh, uh, does that remove the deterrent effect? In other words, you know, people who might consider these crimes, if they Mm -hmm. knew forgiveness was never a possibility, would that be would that be a deterrent? I don't know. I mean, the only way I can look at that with any kind of statistical balance would be, you know, to go back to the death penalty research. And, uh, you know, to see if that would make a difference. I don't know that anyone's ever done that study, but it certainly would be interesting. You're listening to CNN Profiles, and we're, we're speaking with author Jody Picot. One thing that fascinates so many people about you is how prolific you are. So you're not only a great writer, but you're a great prolific writer. So, <laughs> so give us and students of writing your formula. Can they duplicate it? <laughs> I don't think um, that would be wise. I think the the point of being a writer is figuring out what works for you, not necessarily what works for me. You know, I work pretty hard. I work an eight-hour business day. I tend to center it around, amazingly, public school hours when my children are not at home. Um, it's gotten easier, of course, as they've gotten older. I have two in college now and one who's a senior in high school who's pretty self-sufficient. But I work a traditional day. And... Um, You know, when I park my butt in that chair, I write. There are some days that I write really well, and there are some days that I don't write really well. But you can always edit something bad. You can't edit something blank. So I make sure that I'm writing something. Um, I think that's part of of the magic, really. There's a lot of people who want to write a book who are waiting for the muse to land on their shoulder. 
that to me is facetious. Writing is hard work. Uh, there are some days that you do feel like there's a muse with you, but there are lots of days when you don't. And um, it's a job. It is a job I love to do, but it's still a job. We don't want to give give away the details or, or read sections of it now because it, people really need to read the book. But let me ask you this. as you, So you are a, a mother of three children. Two are in college. You say one is a senior in high school. You were writing, you know, a lot of this disturbing subject matter was written when they were younger. Uh, did you want them to read your books? Did they read your books? <laughs> they do now. Um, they haven't always. They waited until I said, you're allowed to read my books, you know, because I was writing when they were tiny. And um, I get asked a lot, you know, well, how old does my child have to be to read your books? And I always say, read them first and you make a decision because it's not so much about, um, you know, language or, or sex in the books. It's really about the emotional content, which can be really heavy for, for some kids. And some are just ready for that younger than others. Uh, I will tell you that my daughter, when she read The Storyteller, um, she loved it. She actually said it's her favorite of all of my books. But she kept coming home and saying, will you make me soup? Could you make a loaf of bread? I'm, re- I'm really hungry. Could you just make me something to eat? She was starving the whole time she was oh reading this book. <laughs> in, in terms of were you a protective parent? Because, again, you know, <laughs> you're delving into this world of imaginative reality. It's, how, how did that affect your parenting or did it? I actually think I am an informed parent. What these books allowed me to do was to sit at the dinner table and have conversations about scary things in a way that maybe wasn't quite as scary to my kids. Um, You know, when my daughter was eight, we were talking about date rape because that's what I was writing about at the time. And she needed to know what it was in a way that was appropriate for her to understand. How did you how did you explain that? Because 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 we we, you know, my wife and I always struggle with this. It's like, you know, how much can you expose them to? Right. And every you know, child and, and is a little different. We basically talked about, you know, people who who um, treat you well and people who are allowed to touch you and, and be in your personal space and those who are not. You know, sort of the same way that you would talk about stranger danger to a younger kid. Um, you know, but we talked about it in terms of having a boyfriend or a girlfriend who might do that. Um, you know, so we tried, again, to make it age appropriate, but she understood that there are scary things in the world and there are reactions to them. Um you know, and, and they knew when I went off on research trips and I would come home and I would, you know, share some of the research with them. Not all of it, depending on what I was researching. Uh, you know, so we, we had some pretty intense conversations at, around our dinner table. Nothing was ever off limits. You could always ask something without fear of ridicule or um, without, you know, fear that you were going to be shot down for bringing up a topic that really shouldn't be discussed. And uh, I, I think because of that, my kids have always been very open with me and have told me the things that are scaring them, things that are bothering them. They come to us for advice. Um, you know, we, we have a household that is really full of communication. And it sounds like a lot of laughs. I just hear, I, I know you deal with heavy stuff, but you got a good sense of humor, yeah. right? Tell me about Yeah, yeah. I actually, people, when they meet me, that's the first thing they say. They're like, oh, you're not nearly as dark as I thought you'd be. Because um, I write about really difficult topics, but I, I'm a very happy person. And, you know, I smile a lot. I laugh a lot. Um, so, yeah, we, we actually do have a great household. You can come and visit anytime you want. You, you, know, you know why you're so happy? Because you get all this anxiety off your system through writing. You lay it on yeah. us. And then you. Right, I'm so sorry. You, you experience <laughs> right. the likeness of being. You're absolutely right. I'm so sorry. I should apologize for that. (laughs) 
you know, what you were saying, though, it, it triggered uh, triggered a thought. One of my children asked me a question that I'm actually going to write a book about, and, and maybe this answer will be part of the book, because uh, one of my children who's, who's particularly sensitive and particularly observant, and one day in an art class when she was younger, about nine years old, uh, the art teacher laid out the newspaper on the table, as art teachers do. Uh, but didn't really check the stories in the newspaper. And there was a little box in the corner of that newspaper which talked about, you may remember it, uh, this uh, kid in Finland, a high school kid who went in and shot Mm -hmm. up his class. And she read that and she held on to it and she locked on to it and it disturbed her so much. And a few days later, after really living with this, she came to me and she said, Dad, if the world were a movie, what would it be rated? Oh, my gosh, what a great question. What's, what's, That's fantastic. Can you can you give her an answer? Oh gosh, uh, it would. If the world were a movie, I think parents would like to think it was NC seventeen, <laughs> but that's not true. Um, you know, I forgot what's what's NC seventeen again. That's, that's the one that you know, like. Uh, you, when when they are showing bare breasts through the entire movie and, you know, there's porn going on. <laughs> it's, it's what's higher than R. It's it's like the old X-rated kind of thing. Well, you said um, pa- parents would like to or you mean they imagine yeah, it is? I, I think, no, I think they imagine that it is. I think people would like to think we could protect our kids all the time. But the truth is that the world is R-rated. The world is not the G rating of Disney World that maybe it used to be or that we used to pretend it was. Um, you know, and I get that a lot. I mean, my books have been banned in schools, in certain schools, because people feel that the, the content is inappropriate. Um, I defy you to find a high school student who hasn't heard a swear word that has been, you know, used in one of my books. Um, you know, I, I think that, that we would like our kids to hold on to childhood as long as they can. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a realistic uh, expectation. But what, how would you answer directly? Because you, for somebody who, who taught her eight-year-old mm. daughter about date rape, what would you say right. to a nine-year-old and then maybe even to a young teenager, two different yeah. audiences, about directly answering that question? I think I would say, you know, the world is full of some really, really frightening things. And there are going to be things that you encounter that you don't understand. And there are going to be things you encounter that you ask me about that I don't even understand. But you can always come to me and talk to me. And I will try to make you feel safe. And I will always be there to listen. That's probably what I would have said. Can you make a child feel safe with a story? I think you can try. I think one of the great great wonders of storytelling is that it does distract us from our reality. Sometimes it expands our reality. Sometimes it makes us think. Sometimes it's uncomfortable and forces us out of a happy little bubble. Um, But sometimes it's there to comfort as well. I think that's evidenced in the storyteller, um, as a matter of fact, in that that gothic fairy tale I was talking about, that is not just a source of survival for Minka, the character Minka in a concentration camp. It also happens to be her source of comfort. It's the one thing she's held onto from her life pre-ghetto. Because it's the one thing that those Nazi soldiers could never take away from her. They can't take away your imagination. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us on CNN Profiles. Jody Picot, her new book is The Storyteller. Thank you. Thank you. 
By the way, you can find CNN Profiles on our website, cnn.com soundwaves, or download us from iTunes, or go to SoundCloud. And please, if you like what you hear, don't be shy. Share.